text is 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. It can be found on page 1098 in your Shed Bible. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. the Lord be with you. Uh, my name is Troy. I'm honored to be one of our pastors here. And uh, I'm going to say some stuff. Um, how many of you like the sound of music? Hey, all right. That old classic. T- you knew I was going to start here, by the way, didn't you? you expected that probably. Um, that old classic tale, the Von Trapp family and their governess, Maria. Maria, who brings love and music into this stale household. Classic musical, classic songs, Do, Re, Mi. Climb every mountain. So long, farewell. Obviously, the sound of music. Um, and my favorite things, which I'll be honest, I struggle to connect with emotionally. Frankly, brown paper packages tied up with string just don't do it for me. Cream-colored ponies? Eh. Um, I will say I do like schnitzel with noodle. That part I like. If I were to write my favorite things, uh, here are a couple of additions I would make. Ready? Hudsonville Seaside Caramel Ice Cream. Now, 
The thoughts and opinions about this particular brand of ice cream are mine and mine alone and do not represent those of Marshall Bible Church. <laughs> Hudsonville Seaside Caramel Ice Cream. I will say, ice cream is my favorite dessert and it's my favorite meal. Um, I love being an adult that allows me to eat it whenever I want, and I do. Uh, here's something else I love. I love Al Green, and I particularly love Al Green's vocal performance on the song Tired of Being Alone, 1971, the album Al Green Gets Next to You. Listen to it today. It reminds us that the Reverend Al Green is an all-time vocal wonder. Amazing. Here's one more thing that I love. I love hearing little kids say things that only adults should say. Do you know what I'm talking about? When things that we associate with adults that are much too grown up to come out of their mouths, when they say them, they're adorable and so funny. Do you know what I'm talking about? Recently, our family was hanging out with the Catlett family, Allison, who just read, Brian, who is our connection to care pastor. We were all hanging out together, and Brian was holding our daughter, Maggie. I mentioned to you last week, Maggie and Post Family Farms. Here's another plug. See you at Post Family Farms on Thursday. Anyway, Maggie loves Mr. Brian. She loves Mr. Brian. And he's holding her, and we're in the kitchen, we're, in the kitchen, we're talking. And out of nowhere, with no context whatsoever, my daughter Maggie, two years old, says this. What comes next for me, Mr. Brian? And it stops the room. Because that's the kind of question that stops things, right? Especially out of the mouth of a toddler. It is an existential wondering that you don't expect out of a two-year-old. What comes next, Mr. Brian? Couldn't believe it. It was so good. It's such a good question, Maggie. And my guess is it's a question that many of us are asking. And it's a question that I know our church is asking. And it's a question that we continue to return to during this teaching series. This series where we're focusing on an ancient letter, 1 Timothy. And every week, we seem to find a magnetic pull towards this question. What kind of church are we going to be, Mr. Brian? What kind of church are we going to be? We find it to be really compelling and really magnetic. We've reached the halfway point, the halfway point of the book of 1 Timothy, the halfway point of our 10-week series. And I will tell you this, that our teaching team, every week we gather to discuss the upcoming series, the upcoming week, and to debrief the last Sunday. And every week we find ourselves surprised by what we find here. We are surprised by the different ways that we can find that continue to answer this question in really compelling ways. What kind of church are we going to be? This ancient letter continues to surprise us and point the way forward. The past couple of weeks, Ashley and Tim, they have, they have bitten off big chunks of the Bible in their teaching. All of chapter 2 one week, virtually all of chapter 3 last week. And I'm going to take my foot off the gas a little bit this Sunday. I'm only going to preach on three verses. Um, now, don't worry. I don't think you're going to get 
shortchanged here. There's plenty happening in these three verses. Plenty of things that I think help to continue to answer this guiding question that we have in front of us. What kind of church do we want to be? So I want to jump right into point one. Ready? One, let's be a church that embodies the truth. Let's be a church that embodies the truth. So uh, the Apostle Paul, the writer of this ancient letter, he starts this section at the end of chapter 3. He inserts a kind of, like it's kind of a transitionary moment. Paul says that he really wants to come and visit Timothy, his mentee, and he wants to come and visit this church in Ephesus. But he's, he expects, kind of like any of us who have tried to fly on an airplane recently, there are going to be delays. So he, in, the, in, in the, the event that he's going to be delayed, he wants to pass some stuff along to Timothy. In the meantime, he wants to do this. He wants to make sure that he gives Timothy some instructions. Some instructions on how people ought to conduct themselves. Now, I think that this is really interesting because if we remember how the letter of 1 Timothy begins, this seems surprising, at least to me. If you remember, way back in chapter 1, multiple weeks ago, we established that Paul is writing to Timothy because um, there are these false teachers milling about. People who are spreading myths, people who are, uh, as it says, controversial speculations. Paul calls it meaningless talk in a couple places. And so Paul's wanted to write Timothy about these particular teachers. And so then I find it fascinating that what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't devote the majority of his words in this letter to addressing the teachings directly. That Paul doesn't, uh, he, he's not trying to reestablish correct doctrine He's not trying to reestablish a particular theological perspective directly. Instead, what Paul does is he jumps really quickly into talking about people should live. And in this section, he does it again. He's reestablishing this as a central point for him. He's talking about how people ought to conduct themselves. I think this is the punchline. The way that you live matters. Now, I know that's not very profound. That sounds kind of pedestrian. That potentially sounds really obvious. But it has always been easy in every day and in every age to separate the ways that you believe from the ways that you live. It's always been easy to do that. And Paul here is making a concerted effort in this ancient letter to reestablish, to re-centralize capital T truth. Truth that is found in Jesus. Paul is trying to re-centralize this. And his primary tactic for re-centralizing truth is dealing with the ways that people live. And just to reaffirm what Tim Nelson uh, suggested to us last week, I think also far in this book we've covered words that are addressed to women, words that are addressed to elders, words that are addressed to overseers. I think every one of those words is intended to be addressed to us as well. All of these words are intended to be for all of us. Because the way that you live 
it speaks to what it is that you believe. That's part of the reason why Paul is concerned about conduct. Because our lives, our lives proclaim and demonstrate the truth. You and I are living witnesses to the good news of God in Christ. The truth is made known and is corrected and is clarified in part by the ways that you coach and watch your children play soccer on Saturdays. Sorry. The truth is made known and clarified and focused and corrected by the ways that you interact on social media. By the ways that you behave when you're in line at Meyer or Target or the Secretary of State, the second ring of hell. <laughs> the truth is made known by the way, the presence that you will be bringing to tables and to living rooms in this upcoming holiday season. By the ways that you react when a decision or an argument doesn't go your way. Or the ways that you react when your toddler throws milk on the floor early in the morning. And hundreds and hundreds of other very specific individual ways that you and I show up in the world. The ways that we live matter. But the embodying of truth is not simply an individual reality. Every single church must faithfully live into this call as well. Our church, Mars Hill Bible Church, must do more than just talk about what is true. Mars Hill Bible Church must live it, must embody it as well. Over the past year, Ashley and I, uh, as we've lived into this co-lead pastor reality, we've continued to increasingly field questions from people about our church. And routinely, regularly, the, the variations on a theme, there's a question like this. What is it that we're doing? What are we after? What's the next thing that we're going to do? What's the next endeavor? What's the next investment that we're making? And not always, but sometimes, sometimes we can get a glimpse that on the other side of that question, it's, there's a desire for spectacle. There's a desire for something shiny and outrageous and like newspaper worthy, newspaper article worthy, this kind of thing, there's a desire for something impressive. And I just wanna stress that embodying the truth does not necessarily mean doing something extraordinary or earth shattering. That often embodying the truth looks like faithfully obeying which is not very sexy. It looks sometimes like what Paul calls in chapter two, living peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. But that being said, 
let me remind you of just a couple of the ways that Marshall Bible Church is seeking to embody the truth. Not at all exhaustive, just a couple of ways. Um, Through our mobilization and renewal engagements that Denise leads us into, where everyone is invited and everyone is encouraged to pour yourself out for the sake of the world. Through our embrace ministry, that doesn't simply celebrate neurodiversity and a wide range of abilities, but it's a ministry that seeks to participate alongside and to learn from and with one another. Through our family life ministry, put on display a bit even this morning, that wants to see children and students shaped into the image of Jesus. And one of the ways that we believe children and students are shaped is by having intentional time with faithful and seasoned adults who will guide and love and witness to these kids and students growing and maturing through the ways that we want formally and informally to be present in neighborhoods, neighborhoods which historically have been easier to be separated and segregated. The formal and informal ways we want to be present in homes where it can be tempting to just smile and nod. Do you know what I'm saying? To smile and nod instead of engaging with curiosity, seeking to understand with a desire to find common ground and shared conviction. The ways we want to formally and informally be in private rooms, intimate moments with people where scripture is read, where prayers are spoken because we are confident that God hears and God speaks and God acts in so many other ways. But let me say this, if and when Mars Hill Bible Church becomes a place that no longer embodies the truth of the gospel, I pray that the spirit of Jesus will speak to us like the spirit spoke to the church in Laodicea. I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. And may the spirit of Jesus rebuke all of the ways that we lukewarmly embody the gospel. And will the Spirit guide us back to being faithful to this calling? Friends and family, let's be a church that embodies the truth. Second, let's be a church that upholds the truth. Paul describes the church here in this little section as God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. All right, there's a lot to highlight here. Let me begin with this. There's an observation that I absolutely love by a woman named Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was a fiction writer. She was friends with C.S. Lewis, with J.R.R. Tolkien in England. And Dorothy Sayers one time said this. She talked about what she called the three humiliations of God. Three humiliations of God. The first was this. The first humiliation was the incarnation. And in the incarnation, God humiliated God's self by taking on physical form, to be confined to a physical body. The second humiliation was the crucifixion. And in the crucifixion, God was humiliated by uh, uh, undergoing a physical death by public execution. And then the final humiliation, the third humiliation, is the church. 
the church where God's reputation and the responsibility for truth-bearing is given to ordinary people. Folks throughout all time, today and throughout all of Christian history, have really struggled to reconcile the ways that the institutional church exists in the world and hold that up against the biblical and historical witness that centralizes the church as the pillar and the foundation of all truth that is difficult for many of us to reconcile. Because unfortunately, there have been so many, way too many instances where the church at large has been self-protective and the church at large has arrogantly wielded the truth for its own purposes and for its own benefits. Instead of humbly bearing witness to this truth and upholding this truth, as Paul says in chapter 2, the truth that God wants all people to be saved and he wants all to come to a knowledge of this truth in Jesus. It's difficult to read something about the church being the pillar of anything. Uh, the English theologian John Stott, he said, he said this. I think it's helpful and instructive for us. The church depends on the truth for its existence. And the truth depends on the church for its defense and its proclamation. And it's this sort of observation that I want to encourage us toward, that I want to encourage us to seek after, to be a church that will faithfully proclaim and will faithfully uphold the truth. Paul uses, as I mentioned here, uses the image of a pillar as a picture of the church. I think this is really interesting. It probably would have been an evocative image for the people who heard it the first time. If you remember, both Tim and Ashley, they've, they've talked a little bit about the temple of Artemis the past couple weeks. You see this image here. And the temple had, was this really central and really overwhelming presence in the city of Ephesus. And what is one of the first things that you see about the temple? Pillars. Supposedly, more than 125 pillars, a kind of marvel, architectural marvel, were incorporated in this structure. So when Paul's talking about the church as a pillar, there's possibility that you're in the shadows of these very pillars. So pillars, they played multiple roles in antiquity. Obviously, they did what we see here, that they hold up, they support ceilings, additional floors. But pillars were also, interestingly, they were also a kind of wayfinding instrument. They were like a GPS. On some hills in cities, they would erect pillars so that when people were traveling, they could identify certain pillars and it would keep them on track. Or if you got lost, you might be able to orient yourself towards a particular pillar and bring you back to the right direction. And pillars were also, they were like a publication medium. People would put ads and announcements and things on pillars so that everybody could see them. They were on displays for everybody. They were like the original message board. 
And I think these are interesting images for us when we think about the church being a pillar of the truth. How might our church, let's just localize it, how might our church be helpful for those who are lost? For those who are traveling the way of suffering and the way of disillusionment and the way of confusion and the way of despair, how might our church uphold the truth so that those who are desperate for a sense of the way forward might be brought home? And how might our church put on, the, put the beauty and the power of the truth on display for everyone to see, especially in a day and an age when contradictory narratives have no problem turning the volume all the way up, when contradictory narratives are plastering anti-truths every single place that space is available. What would it look like for our church to say, hide it under a bushel? No. What would it look like for us to uphold the truth for all to see? Because friends, let's be clear, not all truth sets free. Not all truth sets free. The truth of Jesus as the savior of the world, as Paul centralized at the beginning of this book, that truth is the only truth that sets free. So let's be a church that upholds this truth for all to see. One more thought about this, this little section. Paul writes the words, the church of the living God, and I can't get past this little phrase. Let's ensure that the truth that we are upholding includes this aspect every single time. That the living divine presence of God is what distinguishes the church from every other human assembly. That the living God is encountered here in and through the church. This is in direct contrast to something like a dead poet's society. Great movie, boring society. We are a living God community. Right? (laughs) Let's offer this promise to a hungry and curious world. Come, come and encounter the one who is alive. Come and encounter the one who promised, I will live with them and I will walk with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Come and encounter Jesus who promised a unique realization of his presence whenever two or three people come together. Come and be part of a people who are intended in Christ to be built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Come and encounter the one who is alive. I love the the theologian Luke Timothy Johnson. He said this, for Christians, this encounter involves the person of Jesus, not as a historical person of the past, but as the resurrected Lord in the present. Let's uphold the truth that God is alive 
and God is to be encountered in the gathering of these fellow disciples who just stumble along as best we can. And then finally, let's be a church that is changed by the truth. Paul wraps up chapter 3 here and he quotes uh, what looks like it was probably a, a bit of a hymn or a creedal statement. The people who read this and heard it the first time, they might have even known this. It might have been really familiar to them. Um, in Greek, it's only 18 words. These little phrases are a freight train of truth. And I want to read them again and draw one observation from them. Uh, these words observing, uh, referring to Jesus, he appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. What I want to draw your attention to are the three pairs of couplets that end this hymn. And notice, notice how nothing, nothing is untouched by Jesus. Nothing is untouched and unchanged by this mystery that nothing, nothing is unimpacted by the truth. First, there's flesh and spirit coupled together. What we can see and what we can't see, the visible and the invisible impacted by the truth. We see angels and nations, maybe alluding to a kind of them and us. I think more likely, every living being in all of the created reality, earthly and heavenly, impacted, changed by the truth. And then finally, world and glory, here and there, there's not a place that is not changed and impacted by the truth of God. I think this brief hymn, it's trying to draw us in to the reality-changing power of the truth of the living God. You and I, individually, as we submit to and as we seek to align ourselves with this truth, we will always and forever be changed. And you and I, collectively, as a people, a people who faithfully come together as God's household, as we do our best to submit to and we seek to align our common life to this will and the, 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 uh, uh, the truth. You and I will be made more and more into Jesus' people for the sake of the world. So let's be a church that courageously follows wherever God is leading us in and by this truth. May we never stubbornly cling to the past or to what's familiar, to what is comfortable. But let's allow the truth to always change us and always form us into true godliness. So even today, maybe little gestures are sometimes helpful. I know sometimes little gestures remind my, my mind of what it is that I want to hold on to. Today, 
as we eat and as we drink. We eat and we drink the embodied truth of God in Christ. And in our songs and in our prayers, let's uphold the truth. And in our lives, let's open ourselves to whatever the Spirit wants to do in truth to make us and shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. Let's be that kind of church. All for God's glory and God's honor now and forevermore. Amen.